Thank you, George. Listening to your voice, I would almost love for you just to read our menu every night. He's got that voice that's just beautiful, it's resonant, and anything you say sounds very good. Um, I listened to the reports of uh, this week that my son and my daughter were both at camp at New Life Island. They loved it. I'm not going to let you know which side of the, uh, the average of showers within my own household that we waited towards, but they did have a great time, and I um, very much appreciate that, just being up there to see the excitement when I pick them up and just the, the bonds that are forged and um, what God does in the life of these children as we equip them with God's word in community um, as they look to walk out their lives as this thing called Christianity becomes real to them at the youngest, hopefully, age possible, that God would flourish with the seeds that we've planted, that discipleship in our homes in churches and Sunday schools is not looked upon as something that's just, ah, we've got to keep them busy, but it's looked as something that we're truly trying to sow into the lives of our children and to our adults and to new believers who might come to Shawnee, that God is real, that he's true, that he uses us in the process to equip those, to help disciple and grow those so that they would be nurtured in Christ, be found in Christ, and on that day that they'd be seen with welcoming arms by our Savior. And that's the goal that we do. So all that is a quick reflection on New Life Island and just um, the joy that I have when I see my kids come home and what they experience um, outside of showers. So, But I want to um, read this morning um, from the text and kind of work through what George already read. Allegiance is defined by a devotion or a loyalty to a person, a group, or a cause, allegiance. We learn it from the very youngest of age. We learn our pledge of allegiance. We hear our country. This is our flag. This is what we represent. This is what we hold um, uh, deep in our hearts, our values, where we're almost rooted as a country and what that looks like. And I would suggest in today's age and as we look at our culture um, that allegiances and the lines by which we are drawing them are becoming much more deep much more defined, and need to say much different. We live in a culture right now where our allegiances are polarizing us, that you find many taking to their corners over here and over there, over many causes, over many groups. Maybe it's many people's names that evoke these allegiances. And so what I wanted to do, just for fun, is just name just maybe eight or nine allegiances that if you mention them at your local coffee shop, that you would see very quickly within one to two minutes where people fall in regard to these lines and where our society has drawn them. So I'm just going to say just a, a few words and a few differences here. Conservatism and liberalism. That's always a fun thing to mention at a pulpit in a church. Four-year college or trade school. For or against the Second Amendment. Another one of those. Borders or no borders. Trump or Obama? Uh, and, and these, please don't respond. I, like, I, <laughs> like, I'm going to let you know that. Like, seminary equips you for a lot of things. You start responding to some of that. I haven't taken that class yet, so um, that's where the elders come in, and I am escorted off the stage. Um, for or against net neutrality? Some of you are saying, I don't know what net neutrality is. You are not alone. Should the government provide health care? Yeah, for or against it? 
And this is probably the most divisive of them all. This is where our hearts probably are rooted, where we really see society come out, and it's been echoed for some years now. Old Star Wars or new Star Wars? <laughs> you want to see some divisive people in, in conversations, you talk about Star Wars and its application in the church, and you've got some divide. No, seriously, our culture truly is divided. It's got issues. We see them being played out left and right, okay? We see, um, whether it be an ethnic divide, whether it be globalization or nationality, you know, can nationalism, who we are, and we see this very clearly. You don't have to turn on the news channel for five minutes. You don't have to go to school for ten. Oftentimes, you don't have to walk into a church for three minutes, and you see it pretty clearly. What we equate with God and what baggage we kind of say, hey, this should be on that same label as Jesus. And so as we're seeing this divide, and as we're seeing these tensions between people, oftentimes what happens is the gospel is lost. We as Christians try to weigh the waters in our society and amidst these divides, and we don't know how to kind of weigh those waters. Pretty soon we see taking on water in our ship that's supposed to be only Christ and supposed to be a beacon and a light to those who are lost. And so for most of us, these subjects conjure up within our hearts a passion. And unfortunately, as it does it, it has this wedge. And so in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul's addressing, except the difference is Paul's addressing it from the context of being inside the church. And so where there are always going to be these societal issues that are outside, the church and how it beats and its heartbeat should always be a little bit different. And that the church should be defined by our unity, how we are together, because in theory, we're together here, we're singing praises, and we are in worship for one primary point. And we sung about it this morning. It's the cross. It's Christ. It's what he's done for us. It's our life change within that. It's what they're doing in Portugal. They're looking for these little kids. And you can see the first girl, her testimony was pretty awesome. She's like, I'm looking forward to being a Christian, but she talked about the cross and Jesus dying. But she was taught it didn't happen. Oh, it's a dividing point. But when you walk into the walls of the church and as we gather and we worship on Sunday mornings, it should not be a dividing point whatsoever. There should be a common ground, a commonality. This, is, this should be why we worship. This should evoke smiles, happiness. But as Paul is going to the church and he's addressing the church, this isn't what's happening, and they're divided. And they're dividing over people and their allegiances and who they're lining up with in regard to who brought them to Christ. And so a little background just on Corinth. It was, a, it was a gateway city. It was a port city, almost port cities of port cities. It was kind of like that metropolis. You had a lot of hustle and bustle. You, have, you had economic, you know, basically it was soaring their economy because of all the trade that came in. And with the trade that came in, with the economy that comes in, you've got different social groups that come in, right? You have different ethnicities that come in, and they want to trade too. They want a piece of the pie. And so when you have a hustling and bustling economy, and you've got their, their social um, parameters being stretched and growing. You've got economy flourishing. What, what else comes into there is you've got classes of people, different types of people. And so those who have the money and the means, they own slaves. And so you have the lower class. And so you've got this polarization between um, who the rich are, who the poor are, who you should look up to, who you shouldn't look up to, who you should look down upon. 
And so this is happening. And with all of that, with their ethnicities, with the different cultures that are coming in, with the booming economy, with the influence of, um, and conflation of all of these ideas and thoughts, come gods and deities and religions. And all of this is infiltrating the culture in Corinth because of its openness. Now, the great thing about this is that there is plenty of opportunity. It is ripe for this newfound Christianity. Absolutely ripe. And so in some ways, the church should look at this and say, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. These are people from all over that have come into Corinth and that we now have the opportunity to proclaim the message of Christ. But here's some reality on the church in Corinth and what their background is. Basically, after the Jews were dispersed from Rome, they kind of landed in Corinth. So you've got the dispersion of the Jews that are coming there. You've got all the ethnic um, groups that are coming there for trade and for economy, for new opportunities. And you're coming with their gods, and you're coming um, with all of what they have in their hearts and their families and their lives, hoping for something new. Kind of sounds familiar with maybe a country that we kind of live in. And so all of these people are coming to Christ. And as they're coming to Christ, as they're going out, and if you read Acts chapter 18, you're going to see how Paul started that church, how he went into Corinth, how he met up with this Priscilla and Aquila, and together as tent makers, they worked during the day, preached the gospel. Throughout that time, many converted. Maybe 18 months he was there, and then he had to move on. And then Apollos came in, and Apollos was a Jew, and he was converted, and he went on to help spread the gospel. And you have a very young church bringing with it all the baggage of young Christianity. But it's not just young Christianity from one culture, it's young Christianity from a lot of different cultures. And so you have a lot of different families that are in there. Um, part of the families are there. They go home to maybe rejection at home. They've got their gods. They don't know how to incorporate their gods into what this Christianity is about. They've confessed Christ, but they don't know what that's supposed to look like uh, within this context of house church setting. And they don't know how to incorporate, or if they should incorporate, their culture with this Christianity. And so at the end of the day, Paul is writing to them. It's a very young church. And I took pause as I thought about that, and I look across our congregation, and I know that many of you probably pray for our congregation, for our outreach, for our community, and say, hey, I hope the pews would be filled. I hope that God would work in the lives and that many people would come to Christ, and that Shawnee would be filled, and it's such a great thing, and you spend your time in prayer and your hopes and your thoughts on what that might look like. But something that hit me pretty hard as I was reading that is, what if our churches... Our church specifically, Shawnee Church, was filled. Our pews were completely filled. But they looked like the young Christians in Corinth who came in, importing their ideas, wanting to confess Christ because maybe you've witnessed to them. And right now they're struggling, and they're young, and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to walk that out. Hey, but our, our pews are filled. Would we be willing as Christians to patiently, graciously, Look at them because they don't look like us. They don't smell like us. Maybe they don't act like us. Maybe they've been, never been in a church at all before. Would we be willing to graciously sit next to them and disciple them into maturity as Christians? That's a hard thing. We don't want to cross the aisle in politics. Are we going to cross the aisle in our pews? And so something like that hit me strong. I'm like, this is a young church. I don't know. There, there's some cultures I'm just not familiar with. And maybe that's just too much of my time. Maybe my love just isn't that big. But it's something that I want you guys to think about as we work through and look through this passage. And so Paul's addressing this divisiveness, and he's concerned about specifically their unity. 
Their unity, because of their divisiveness, is breaking apart. And why is that? Why is that important to Paul? Well, if you think back into John chapter 17 and Christ and his high priestly prayer, what is the one thing that Christ prays for? He prays that the believers, first his disciples, and then those who would come to faith after him, that they would be one, as he and the Father are one. But he doesn't just pray that they'd be one because everyone's the same. He prays for a very specific purpose. He says, let them be one as we are one, so that they will know that you sent me. He wants them to be one. He wants them to be unified specifically for the purpose of, of resonating the gospel message that the Father has sent the Son. His name is Jesus, and this is what happened. Our oneness isn't just because we should get along. Our oneness is for the purpose of coming together to resonate the name of Jesus Christ in his story. And so Paul, if you look at the epistles that he writes, which is two-thirds of the New Testament, you read Ephesians, all throughout Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, Romans, he speaks on unity and how it needs to be applied and how critical it is for the church. Why? Because it needs to be consistent and the message needs to be consistent. We as a church should be resonating the message of Christ. And so Paul is really, really focusing here. I can't imagine what they were like. Many of them were going into their own corners, and basically the argument was, hey, you know what? Paul brought me to Christ, or Apollos brought me to Christ, or Peter brought me to Christ, and I was baptized by that person. And so right now, I'm going to stake my claim in that person's name. And so everybody was going into their own corners for the own person that they backed up, of who brought, who brought them to Christ. And what was being left and what was being forsaken was the actual gospel, the cross, which made a way for them to get there. It was being left high and dry as people went to their own corners. Now, in some ways, I, don't, um, I understand how it happened. The culture in Corinth, you had many orators. You had people who were, the Greeks were wise. They loved to talk. They loved to talk. They loved to be out in the streets. They loved to communicate how wise they were, how eloquent they were with the issues of the day. They loved to speak about things from other cultures, how they're wrong or how they're right. And so people would actually line up, and you would have paid people who would go out there into the streets. They were actually commissioned to itinerate and go to different towns and actually let you know how good and wise they were. The Greeks were a humble bunch, weren't they? And so before we think that this is absolutely crazy, I would never go pay to hear or listen to or take time or hours out of my day to listen to somebody do that. Might I say that we all probably have cable. We all have radio stations. We all have podcasts. And we subscribe to them. And we listen to these people for hours on hours and hours for the wisdom of how we can correct our, our world that that's lost. Oh, we do the same things today, it just looks a little bit different. And so this is what he's coming into. And as a missionary, I, I've had the opportunity to be in a lot of different countries. And I understand what Paul's going through here and that I would bring the gospel to other countries, and some of those places would be remote. I know my wife had it in Africa when she spent her time in a lot of southern Africa. Um, when I was out in Siberia and through Russia, some of those places are so remote, they haven't, they haven't seen an American before. In Africa, they hadn't seen somebody who had lighter skin color. And so they would look at you and be enamored just by your appearance or where you came from. And so by the time that you got to the gospel message or you talked about who Christ was, 
You found their attachment was to you as a person and where you came from and what you represented rather than who you were speaking about and who Christ represents to them. And so the difficulty as a missionary sometimes is attempting to the best of your ability to separate who you are from who the message of Christ and who Christ is for their life. Because at the end of the day, when they go to be before God, they can't take my name into that room. They can only take Christ's. And so as people are lining up and they're doing that and they're kind of going into their own corners, Paul lets them know that they've forsaken the wisdom of the cross as they're seeking man's wisdom. And so I'm going to start on verse 18 and 19. and says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul, right there, is quoting Isaiah. And it's when the Lord is speaking to Isaiah, and he says, Hey, these people, their lips say these right things, these correct things. They talk about Jesus. But the problem is, is their hearts are far from me. They're so distant from me. They're saying all these right things. They're in the right places. But unfortunately, even the wisest of them will not see the good that I'm about to do because though they're spewing the right things, their hearts are very distant from me. And so they're forsaking the things that are the most important. And we have to remember, Rome was a very dominating influence. And so if you were to align yourself with Jesus and the person of the cross, you were looked at, as, this, as Paul talks about, as a foolish person. For the Romans, the cross was the ultimate and the epitome of torture. So much so that they didn't crucify their own Roman citizens. It was just too much for them. It was left for those who were not citizens and for the most humiliating visual representation of the pride of Rome and how they tortured someone. And so for the Greeks and for the Romans, it was absolutely disgusting. For the Jews as well, the cross was punishment from God. And as a matter of fact, they saw it as a curse. So for a Jew, if you're going to stand before a Jew who was not a follower of Christ, and you were to say, hey, this cross means something to me, for them, they said, wow, you, you believe in something that's a curse, that we've believed historically as a curse? Why would you align yourself with someone like that? Why would you align yourself with this Jesus on the cross? So the cross to them was absolute folly. So to be a person of the cross... As you walked through town, your economic and your societal status didn't necessarily bode well. So maybe it was um, something that was on the kind of back of your mind at best. You weren't going to go and say, hey, this is who I am, a person of the cross, especially if you own a business, because maybe then you wouldn't have a lot of people buying your products. Maybe economically you would suffer for it. Maybe socially you wouldn't be in those groups or in those statuses or those people to whom you want to be influenced by and to influence, maybe you'd be cast off to the side. And so the message of the cross, absolute folly. I'm not going to put that in front of me. And so you're seeing Paul kind of address this lifestyle that is outside of Corinth being imported into the church and kind of working its ways. And as people are starting to splice off, Paul's like, no, this can't be. He wanted them to know that the cross is folly, but, but guess what? It's folly for those who are perishing. Let that speak. It's folly for those who are perishing. If we, as Christians today, are afraid to mention the cross, Paul says, for those who think it's folly, it's for those who are perishing. But here's the great thing. For those of us who are being saved, who God has called to be his own, it is the power of God. So it is what we should be leading with. 
this is what the cross is. He's saying, guys, reset your minds, reacclimate what these definitions are. Foolishness in the world is perishing because the cross has said it so. Foolishness for us, because we believe in the cross, it is our empowerment. I think about our evangelistic opportunities and our tendencies, and I've talked about this in our family group, and I talk about this with our children as I disciple, my wife and I disciple our kids, is that you're often taught when you're growing up, hey, this is how you give a testimony. This is what it should look like. And you're saying, hey, this is what my life was before Christ. This is how I came to Christ, and this is what my life looks like after Christ. And to have a testimony is absolutely important. I encourage everyone to know how that came about in your life, how God awakened your eyes and your mind and your heart to who he is. But what oftentimes when we apply that, when we're trying to evangelize to somebody or tell them about who Jesus is, what happens is we take the primary role in evangelism. And so we talk about us a whole lot. And what happens is the message of the cross and who Christ is takes a backseat and a supplemental role. And here we go. Our testimony now is primarily just about us. And the way in which we want them to come to Christ is only through the cross, and we leave that out. And it's a tendency in American evangelism for that to happen. And so Paul digs in as he continues on in verse 20 and 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the stage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul loves rhetorical questions. I think God uses a lot of the authors of the Bible to do that. Um, where is the one who is wise? He's speaking to the Greeks here. As Greek culture obviously relied upon their wisdom, he's saying, hey, where is the one who is wise in the, in the Greek culture who saw that God would become man and rescue us from this turmoil? Where, where are they? What have, that, what have they done? What have they said to you that is of any redeeming value? Where is the scribe, he says. The scribes often in the Gospels are obviously partnered with the Pharisees and the scribes. Where are the scribes? Where are the Jews who are writing and well acquainted with the law of God where are they? They're transcribing this law. They're teaching, the, and, and they're with the Pharisees talking about the law constantly. They're applying the law as a yoke on their people. But where were they? Did they see Christ coming? Did they see Christ coming down from God as man to be crucified and to see that this is the wisdom? Did they see this from a distance? No, they didn't. So Paul's like, where are they? Where's the debater? Can someone stand with me? Now, I love that Paul says this because he's actually not coming to them to debate. He's coming to them to talk about the foolishness. But if we remember in Acts 18, when the Corinthian church was started, just before that in Acts 17, Paul did debate. Paul was a debater. And I would suggest he was a pretty good debater. It was when he was talking about all the gods, and then there was this tribute to an unknown god. And so God, uh, Paul says, hey, I can tell you who this unknown god is. And he sits there and he talks with them for a while. But he's saying, hey, where's the debater now? Who's got the best rationale that can tell me about this cross, about the way in which we can save the lost? If they had such great wisdom, they would have, been, they would have seen Christ's coming. However, Paul goes on to say that in all the world's wisdom, they missed it. And they missed it because God was wise enough not to show them. I think about that. God was wise enough not to show them. Why is that? Why is that? I think that if God included man in suggesting, hey, how do, we, how do we reconcile here? How do we make this happen? How do we make this right again after Adam? 
What you would get is the wisdom of the world, and eventually you'd get a projection of ourselves. We'd create an idol. And I think you saw Israel do that all throughout the Old Testament. From Moses being up on the mountain saying, hey, what should we do? How should we conjure up what we should worship? How should we rally our troops instead of the message and waiting on God? And Moses, the prophet at that time, best they got was a golden calf. You've got Tower of Babel. You've got all kinds of things that man wants to do to project how in the world can we reconcile this? How can we answer life's questions that hurts in our hearts? And so you watch this culture express it in that way. The, cult, the cross is countercultural. It's counterintuitive to any means that man has to conjure up. So God, in all of his wisdom, said, I'm good. I don't need your help. Thank you. And thank God for that. In verse 22, he goes on to say, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You have to remember that Jews constantly, constantly were looking for miracles. The reason being is because the Jews and their culture created miracles with authority. So even though this was something that they professed, this is something that they always sought, I think if you look back in Scripture, how many miraculous signs do you see that the Jews wanted, but nothing ever happened? They would go through the same cycle over and over again. God, we need you. God, we want you. God rescues them. They walk with God for a time, for a bit. Then they start to incorporate other gods. They start to placate God in heaven. And what happens is they have the scriptures. It's far from their hearts. And then eventually they just forget the scriptures entirely. And they go through this cycle over and over again. And they say, God, no, help us, save us. We need a miracle. We need you to come in. We need you to help us. And then God works generally counterintuitively to how they would think that needs to be, that they would need to happen. And so the Jews looking for these miracles, suggesting that authenticates who God is, are completely missing the boat of Christ. And remember, we're not that far removed from the actual crucifixion at this time. And then what is great, what is pretty amazing, that God says, I understand that you're foolish. I understand that you don't know where you are. I understand that you don't know how to, if you would get to me or reconcile this relationship, I'm going to come down, do it on the cross. But the great thing is I'm now going to use you to spread that message. And so he says in verse 24, Paul declares God's sovereign goodness by saying that Christ draws all men unto himself, both the Jews and the Greeks. He didn't throw out everything. Judgment came, but his grace then came. Paul says later, where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds all the more. This constantly works itself out with the gospel message. And he says, yeah, okay, I see that you are trying to thwart my process, but here's the deal. I'm going to awaken your hearts to who you are and to who I am. But now, on top of that, I'm going to take you and I'm going to use you. You were against me before, but in your repentance, I'm going to use you to be a, a proclaimer of the gospel. And not only that, I'm going to say both Jews and Gentiles. And so in essence, he levels the foolishness of man so that everyone is on the same playing field, humbled by the wisdom and the saving power of the cross. He moves on to verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. How about that for a pick-me-up? Not many of you were wise. Not many of you according to the worldly standards. 
says in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul goes on to encourage them in what I would suggest is a backhanded way. He says, remember how you were called to Christ. Remember how you were called to, like, remember where you were when that happened. What were you chasing after? What were the things in which you were involved? What did you lean upon when you were hopeless? Remember the situation that you were in. Remember the hopelessness of the world. If you were a Jew, you knew exactly what that was. Society was not going the way you liked it. You were being conquered. You were enslaved. You were looked down upon. And not only that, you did the exact same things to those who were not Jewish. Remember where you were when you were called. Remember for those who were Greeks, for the Stoics, for the philosophers, for those who had just said, you know what, I, I understand that I'm not wise enough. And to respond to your call, remember where you are. Remember where you were called. Remember that. And what got you to the point of reconciliation? It was the cross. And God has intentionally chosen you, he's saying, and made you wise with the message of the cross and will use you to carry out his purposes throughout Corinth. Why? Why does he do that? So that no man may boast. I think man in our own lives as we walk out, we have a propensity, we have a desire, we have a need to feel gratified with what we've done with what we've accomplished. I watch it in churches all over. I uh, try to hedge my heart in with it in humility. Um, You see TVs, you see ministries, and we love to say, this is what we've accomplished. This is what we've done. We build buildings to it. We build programs to it. And we put the weight of the world on our mechanisms of ministry. We put the weight of salvation or effectiveness in ministry on a person, on a position, on a pastor. And I've seen time and time again where those mechanisms have failed, those pastors have failed, and I've seen churches split, fall apart, ministries crumble right before my eyes. It's because we, as the church, have a difficult time humbling ourselves at times to say, God, it is still you. You didn't just save me the one time, but in the process of my life and walking out this thing called Christianity, it is you who sustains me. It is you who breathes life into me. It is you who gives me a hope and has my future in your hands. So the bigger we make our ministries or the bigger we make our mechanisms for ministry, you know, I think about Shawnee here, and I remember one of the first things that uh, I heard um, as we're approaching summer is they got a VBS of all VBSs. Like, it's like the VBS. Like, VBS should stand for something else, like Shawnee Vacation Bible School or something, turned to SVBS. But I heard very good things about this VBS, and it's cool, and I got to participate. I got to check some people in this year on Monday and Tuesday for a couple of days. It was pretty awesome to see all the kids come up and the parents come up. And then I would see parents who would say, oh, I knew you, you came. And they, would, they brought people to VBS. 
And then we had all of our different um, stations that they went to, and it was quite successful. They raised some awesome support for missions um, and getting the word out to other people, and obviously Portugal and such. And I was really, really, really encouraged. But the tendency sometimes is to rely upon that mechanism to be the primary means by which we spread the gospel. And so these friendships that happened, and these people that brought other families who said, you need to come to our VBS or come to our church because maybe this is the gateway to get you in church in any way, shape, or form. What happens is if it didn't happen at VBS, there's no follow-up. When I say follow-up, that means from, from you who might have invited somebody. Have you gone back to your friend? Have you gone back to that family and said, hey, you enjoyed VBS? Hey, let me talk to you a little bit more about that. Or are you hoping for the next activity or mechanism that the church does so that you could bring them again so that somebody else can tell them about this cross of Christ? And so we put all this emphasis on these things within our church, and we take a little ownership of ourselves in this cross that saved us to apply it to our own lives and walk that out. And so Paul is saying here, hey, guys, Consider your calling. Remember how you came to Christ. Not only that, God will choose what is low and despised in the world, which now is you and your culture. God will choose to use you to bring about his goodness. And as you come together, you'll be unified over that message. And in that unity and with that message, Christ is then resonated throughout that culture and that society. But the difficulty is and the hard thing is, is that it's foolishness. And I don't know about you guys, show of hands would suggest that probably nobody likes to be a fool. Like, not at all. I don't like rejection. There have been plenty of times where I've, I've conveyed the gospel to somebody the best I can. I've offered to say, hey, let's walk through Scripture together, and I've been absolutely flat-out rejected. But here's the cool thing. God is sovereign in all that. Our goal is to proclaim the gospel. Our goal is to scatter seed. Our goal, to the best of our ability, as we see that growing, is to help nourish that seed as God would walk alongside us to do that. But nobody likes to be foolish. And Paul is saying, be foolish, because that is where your power is. The Bible says, humble yourself, and the Lord what will lift you up. It doesn't make any sense. The cross doesn't make any sense. But it is our power. So he wants us to be the vehicles for his good purposes, so that no man may boast. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace we've been saved through faith, and this not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Why? So that no man may boast. The goal in the gospel is all about Christ, all about him, what he did, how he breathed life into our dead bodies, spiritually. We were dead. We did not look to him. We did not say, hey, let me reach up my hand, God, you grab me. No. No. It was all God looking down on us in his grace and saying, I'm going to breathe life into you. And not only that, I'm going to use you for my purposes to spread that message to others. That's an amazing opportunity that we have. And that's why Paul emphasizes, consider your calling. Consider the fact that you too were dead. Remember that. Now breathe that same message of life to other people. Let them know what the cross is, that it is not folly, but it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. As he moved on to verse 30 and 31, he says this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Again, he revisits that. 
Paul reminds them that it's because of God's great wisdom that they are in Christ. He made the way to them, breathing life into their dead bodies, and it's his wisdom that they should be seeking. He is the name that their souls can hang their hat on as their identity is found in him. In Galatians 2.20, we see Paul write that as well. It is no longer I who lives, but what? Christ who lives in me. If he truly is the one who lives in you, that should be coming from our lips. The cross is a good thing. The cross is a good thing. It is what separates us from culture. It is what separates us from other religions. But it's also the bridge for them to come and know Christ. If we don't get to the cross, then we've gotten to nothing. Then we might as well be orators of the day just spouting off what we feel is knowledge. But if we never come to the reality of the cross, its application in our life, and the fact that it levels the playing field for those to come to Christ regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their culture, and that because of the cross working itself out and through our lives, that we can then stand next to those people who are young in the faith and help walk that out with them. How are we doing that with the opportunities that are right in front of us? When we have a great opportunity right now to resonate the gospel in a world that is so divided, we know one thing that levels that playing field, and that is the cross. That is the answer. It is why it was the joy set before Christ, should it be the joy set before us that we bring that gospel message. We do have the answer. And it's not foolish to us, but it will be foolish to those who reject Christ. But that's not on us. They're rejecting Christ. Prior to Christ, we are conditioned in our hearts to look anywhere but Christ and align ourselves with whatever the world has to offer. Now that we are in Christ, he's precisely where we need to look. The word of the cross The word of the cross is the beautifully humbling, powerful word that says my sin was credited to Christ and his righteousness, his goodness in exchange for that was imparted and was credited to me. And when that occurred, he said it is finished. It is done. He sealed it with rising from the grave and ascending to the right hand of the Father. That is the word of the cross. That is the word we are to take to the world, and that is the word to which we are called to be ambassadors for Christ, with God making his appeal through us. That is an awesome word. Why do our lips and our heart, why do we tremble with that message? Lest you feel that you're alone in this and that some super apostle, Paul, did not feel the same way. If you turn just right to chapter 2, the first thing he says to, you, to them, he said, hey guys, I came to you with nothing but Christ crucified. I came to you with fear and trembling, he says. I, like, I don't understand that attribute to Paul. I see Paul as a very bold person. Paul willing to go to anyone, anywhere, for any length to tell them about the cross of Christ. But what he said to the Corinthians is, I came to you in fear and trembling. In our culture right now, there will be times where you need to step up to the plate because God's provided you an opportunity to speak the word of the cross. And there will be fear and trembling. 
What's going to be fresh on our hearts, on our lips? Do we truly believe? Does it resonate within us that the word of the cross is what changed our lives? That it's not something foolish, but it is something that is powerful and being worked out in our lives on a daily basis. When we're given the opportunity with our coworkers or next door neighbors, maybe you don't even know their names. When we're given opportunities to present the word of the cross, you will have that fear, but God will work through that. And if there is rejection, it's the rejection of Christ and that message, and that will be there. It will be fragrant to some. It will be disdained to others. But in our obedience, because it's being worked out in our lives, we know that it is truth, and that God is going to use us to apply that message to a very lost and a very hurting and a very polarized world today. We have an answer. We have the cross. And it is good. It is powerful. And it is working in and through us. Not just one time. But it's an application that works through this thing called sanctification. As we're working through our lives, as we're Christians and living our lives, the cross didn't just happen so that we're saved and we are justified. The cross happened so that we could actually make it through this life and to the Father. The ultimate goal of the cross is so that there be reconciliation, so that one day God and us face to face because of Christ, because of the cross. That's the goal. And so he needs to work in and through us every day of our life as we walk that out. And so I challenge us. I challenge me. I would love to see pews filled. I would love to see more people resonating the name of Christ. I would love to see people joining in worship about this message of the cross that we will sing about. I would love to see people with their hearts bowed before him, contrite, with their hands raised on knees, whatever it might look like, proclaiming the name of Jesus. Are we ready for that to happen, though? Are we ready in the areas of ministry where God has placed us? Has that been fresh on our lips, in our neighborhoods, with those with whom God has placed us in close proximity, whether it be work, whether it be home, whether it be school, colleges you're going off to, colleges you're at already? Where is the word of the cross? How will we walk that out? There will be fear and trembling, but God has assured us that he will be with us even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all glory, of all honor, and all praise. Father, your love is so good. You are so kind. Your grace has been extended to our lives where our sin abounded. But your grace covered that as you called us to be your own. Father, may we remember the cross, its application in our lives personally and continually throughout our lives. Lord, may that message truly resonate in us. Lord, as we have opportunities, open our eyes. May we not be afraid to talk and speak of the cross for it is the only way into salvation. And may our hearts grow deeper in love with you, what that means to us as we humbly come together to worship you. And as we do gather on Sundays, as we do gather in small groups, and we, may we be unified over your word, over the cross. May it encourage us, challenge us, and may you be glorified along the way. 
In Jesus' name, amen.